The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Three men, with identities forged in the white-hot fires of the 90s comic book boom, now ready to re-examine the era where heroes became extreme, and what magazine gave rise to a market of speculation. If you've got the guts, prepare to enter the world of... Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. Greetings, geeks, and welcome to episode 28 of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. The podcast where we re-examine the 90s comic book boom through the pages of Wizard Magazine. Cordially inviting you to eat my shorts. I'm Adam. An underachiever and proud of it. I'm Michael. And don't have a cow, man. I'm Steven. And joining us this time around is a man, an artist, and comics fan, who Legend Tells was born with a pencil in his hand. But most importantly, a Wizards listener who's gone so far as to provide our official show art, immortalizing us in caricature form. Please welcome to the podcast, Eric Johnson, a.k.a. at Illustrator Eric. Thank you. It's like I'm all the way back in December of 1993 when Mrs. Doubtfire was the number one movie at the box office while Batman Mask of the Phantasm opened on Christmas Day and was the 23rd highest grossing movie that month. (laughs) He's coming in hot with the trivia. This is good for me to know because my other podcast will eventually get to them and I'll be like, I heard it when. Mrs. Doubtfire was number one in December that year. Good to know. Thank you for the heads up. I appreciate it. (laughs) I like to do cross promotions here. Fantastic. (laughs) Now, it's very appropriate that Eric is here with us for the discussion of this issue because it is very artist heavy. But before we actually get into that, a little business up top. Uh, I need to inform you, the listener, that I am in the process of moving at the moment. So I am soon going to go off the grid, Nick Fury style, for a few episodes while I get set up in my new home base. So I apologize in advance for all the Long Island talk you'll be enduring. And the abundance of no notes taken by me in order to get this show going. (laughs) I'll try to keep you in line. Oh, God, you're you're all screwed. (laughs) (laughs) But seriously, Michael and Steven have some fun guests lined up, and I will still be involved on the many episodes and social media here there as I can, as as I'm not packing away all my priceless vintage collectibles and other items that my wife deems valuable. You know, so (laughs) I'm going to be busy with that in the meantime. But, you know, I say we, we just say that's, you know, an adventure to come. New changes for 2021 for a time, and if the show doesn't implode entirely if we don't get canceled we'll count it as a win that's our only job don't get canceled (laughs) and and for anybody listening any ideas you have just throw them at us on twitter i'll put them all in i don't care what they are (laughs) there's no rules when adam's away no rules careful what you wish for But, Eric, you know, you have been very vocal, speaking of which, on social media, certainly our most involved listener. It's very clear that this is a a subject that is near and dear to your heart. But we want to find out, really, how the drawing bug bit you, how comic books played their part in all of that. So, Eric, please tell us your origin story. Gladly. My name is Eric Johnson. I'm a freelance illustrator based out of the middle of Michigan, and my first exposure to comics came from the newspapers. You know, the funny book papers. (laughs) 
I would rush home after school to read the afternoon edition of the newspaper that had all the comics. Some of my favorites growing up were Peanuts, Garfield, Calvin and Hobbes. I, I just loved how Peanuts could make an exasperated sigh into a punchline. So ever since I was a kid, I knew I wanted to be a cartoonist when I grew up. The shift from comic strips to comic books happened in the late 90s when I entered a magazine contest to create an original superhero that would be featured in a future issue. So I created a character named Maximum Max. Did I mention it was the late 90s? <laughs> he had a truly ridiculous design with satellite dish ears and these boots with faces painted on them. Oh, those uh, are unique. Yes, certainly. Not only did my hero win the contest, but I was informed that the outlandish design had been what caught their attention. Hey. Wow. From that point on, I sought to learn more about the superhero genre and did that through the way that quests of that type begin in pre-Google Internet search eras at the public library, where I looked Whoa. up comic books under the antique card catalog system, which directed me to the Arts and Humanities section, where I located a copy of Marvel's Bring on the Bad Guys. Oh, that's the Fireside books. Yes. It may seem like an odd entry into comics lore, but the fact that none of these stories were the first meant that you had to infer what was going on from context, like how Mr. Fantastic alludes to the team's cosmic powers, or Spider-Man's mention of looking for a missing scientist with an editor's note saying that the event transpired in a previous issue. There's a sense of excitement with these references, suggesting a greater world in history than just the single story. Not to mention, Marvel villains are just so much larger than life. I mean, Doctor Doom had a boisterous delivery that was just as chilling as it was entertaining. I knew from that point on, I had to get my hands on anything and everything that Stan Lee had put his name to. Fortunately, it was around the same time that Marvel released their Essential Marvel Collection. Ah, uh, I remember those. These were phone book-sized collections of black-and-white reprints of vintage comics, and these things were treasure troves. I would just plop on my bed and pour over these for hours on end. My heart would skip a beat any time I'd see an issue credited to Jack Kirby. My favorite titles of this line were The Fantastic Four, The Amazing Spider-Man, and Captain America. Sadly, I purged quite a few of those from my collection at the end of my high school years when I was more into contemporary comics, but... These Fantastic Four collections have stood on my bookshelf all these years in a place of honor, despite the loose binding and dog-eared pages and a whole lot of love, let me tell you. <laughs> That's not to say I wasn't relying solely on vintage material at the time. Our local comic shop, Collector's Corner, was just a short bike ride away from school, and thanks to my afternoon newspaper route, I had plenty of money to spend. While Andy, the comic book store owner, looks like that typical St Simpsons comic book store guy, he ran the store as a family business with his wife and also served on the city council. 
their family-friendly setup really presented an opportunity for me to show up at the store on weekends during the summer where Andy let me draw character sketches for the customers for tips. I binged a lot of back-issue titles collecting stuff that would have come out in the 90s as well, like Marvel's Thunderbolts series about a team of villains who are pretending to be heroes with art by future Spider-Man artist Mark Bagley, as well as the dense, wacky teenage team Young Justice with pencils by future Spider-Man meets Obama artist Todd Nacht. I know I also picked up some event comics from this time, like Death of Superman, Batman No Man's Land, and Heroes Reborn. Sadly, I've recently learned that Collector's Corner has closed up shop after taking a hit during the pandemic this past year. I I really would have loved to have taken one last look around, see if he finally ever got rid of all that Phantom Menace merchandise. (laughs) (laughs) So, Eric, where did you come up with your signature style? I'd say my first instructional drawing book was Klutz Books 1995's Draw the Marvel Superheroes. I had it. I instantly discarded it. I'm like, I don't want to learn fundamentals. (laughs) (laughs) But it is very much a beginner's book. It would be years later until I'd finally get my hands on a copy of How to Draw Comics the Marvel Way, which is a much more intermediate drawing instruction book. As far as influences, I'd say Jack Kirby with his run on the Fantastic Four. In high school, I discovered Will Eisner's The Spirit, as well as his more underground comics like The Contract with God. And, of course, Bruce Timm's animated style for Batman the Animated Series was a huge influence. But uh, if we're going specifically on late 90s, early 2000s artists, I bought up anything that had... Alex Ross or Jim Lee artwork in it. Jim Lee is such a great artist, but I feel like I learned so many bad habits copying him, <laughs> like an over-reliance on cross-hatching that took me a long time to unlearn. Well, that's awesome. Yeah, I mean, it's great to know your influences. And, you know, you have a work often at a theme park, right, where you actually do caricature work. So my question is, how often are people asking you to draw them as superheroes? Oh, let me tell you, that happened all the time. Uh, You're quite right. I gained some notoriety when I was hired by a company that sent me to draw characters at amusement parks and zoos throughout the country. And having uh, experienced drawing superhero bodies at the peak of Marvel mania definitely put me ahead of the curve. And it's not the only time I've uh, been drawing superheroes for a living. One of my first jobs out of college was actually working at Nickelodeon Studios. Oh. Where I worked on the second SpongeBob SquarePants movie, Sponge Out of Water, where my <laughs> comic book know-how got put into practice when I was involved with a scene at the climax where the SpongeBob characters gain superpowers, complete with costumes and code names to combat a pirate played by Antonio Banderas. <laughs> that was the only part of that movie that mattered to me, outside of Hasselhoff. we couldn't get him back for the second movie he insisted only on being paid in burgers (laughs) (laughs) served on the floor of course 
<laughs> poor Hasselhoff. Come on. Our German listeners are going to come after us now. <laughs> My comics purchasing kind of dipped off a little after high school. And unlike some of your other origin stories you've had on this show, my drop-off had nothing to do with discovering girls. (laughs) (laughs) Unlike me? (laughs) You see, I went to art school, so most of the girls on campus were already into comics or manga. In fact, there was an unexpected role reversal where one woman I dated in college actually introduced me to and then got me hooked on the Vertigo comic series fables so oh i know fables yeah yeah but yeah no the drop-off occurred in college when the nearest comic book shop the closest one to campus was an hour bus ride away but it sounds like you had a great you know history lesson the way you started and everything so that's wonderful that you have all the the classic marvel influences now marvel obviously was very well known for having their letters pages but speaking of letters I think it's time that we open up Willie Lumpkin's mailbag. Now, in Willie Lumpkin's mailbag, Wizard is accused of selling out in a letter from reader John Kantner from Wayne, Michigan. Dear Wizard, selling out. No, I'm not talking about Superman 75, the Plasm Number Zero binder, or any other hot items that are sold out on the first day they're released. No, I'm talking about something much more serious. I'm talking about Wizard Magazine selling out. I remember... When I got my first issue, Wizard Number 9, I was amazed by the editorial content and the fantastic cover and poster, and in general, the attitude that the Wizard staff had toward comics. Attitude, you say? What, pray tell, do you mean? One example would be you guys saying, and what about Quasar? Boy, does that comic suck? (laughs) (laughs) Which you didn't exactly say, but that was kind of the thing you said. I liked it. I told myself, they're not afraid to offend some people, criticize some companies, or just plain insult people. They say what they want, I thought. Then things (laughs) changed. One person wrote in saying, that kids buy this magazine. So be careful what you say. Give me a break, man. Will Wizard rip into this person? You can imagine my shock when instead you said, sorry. Sorry? It won't happen again? We forget sometimes. We apologize. From now on, one, we'll be nice, sensitive, 90s guys, we'll change, blah, blah, blah. And it only got worse you exploit women sorry you insult the readers sorry you guys keep your opinions to yourself don't make fun of people sorry now wizard is becoming a well wussy magazine (laughs) you guys are becoming too politically correct and any chance you get you apologize i notice you don't even say damn anymore 
I wanted to get some curse words in, so I got a damn. <laughs> oh, a damn. You guys say darn, crap, etc. And now you hardly have the guts to trash bad comics. 20 bucks says we'll be seeing articles on how great Sleepwalker and Quasar are soon. You used to trash such comics. Please don't sell out. I like this mag because it was fearless. Now you're afraid to even say, babe, it's your magazine. Say what you want. John Kantner, Wayne, Michigan. Wizards only response. Sorry. (laughs) Hey, it's a local boy there. What do you think, Eric? Ooh, he's cranking up the fighting words there. (laughs) Steven, are you going to Google search this guy and find him on Facebook? I may have already. (laughs) I'm always curious what happens to people after they write their letters to Wizard. What becomes of them? Because some of them are very, very opinionated. And I want to know what happens to someone who's very opinionated at 13 or 14. And they they mostly seem to be doing well. (laughs) So here's the funny thing. If this guy thinks... This magazine is becoming too politically correct in 93. (laughs) (laughs) Their their brain must have exploded six times over. Especially if they kept reading. Especially with some of the covers coming up. Those are not politically correct covers. Right. Seriously. Wow. John Kantner. Oh, boy. Good luck. Steven, (laughs) what? What else do we have in Willie Lumpkin's mailbag? Dear Wizard, I saw the ads for the August issue of Shadow Man, and all I can say is, wow. Finally, a company with vision. I cannot tell you how long I have waited for just such a story. Rock and roll and comic books, each as a basic staple of American society as peanut butter and jelly. And Aerosmith, no less. Such genius in a company so young. But do not stop there. There are so many other things to do now that the barrier between rock and comics has been broken once again. I pray to God the damn wall stays down. Below are just a couple of my ideas for future stories. Exo Manowar. While in Boston, Eric runs into the new kids on the block. Whence he challenges Donnie, who is in my opinion the cutest guy on the block, to a dance-off. That's not my (laughs) opinion, but it's her opinion. Well, things get a little ugly during the competition, but all is forgotten when they both team up against the new kid's agent, who turns out to be, that's right, one of Master Dark's minions. Harbinger, while fleeing Harada, Zeppelin, and the rest of the crew run into a western bar in Texas, where they meet up with Billy Ray Cyrus, in an issue that could, be, could only be called Achy Breaky Harbinger. Ugh. Hell, the, the, the issue practically writes itself. From S. Penelope Jones of Escondido, California. And Wizard responded, Master Dark and Sinead O'Connor. Actually, the word from Valiant is that they will probably do more music comic crossovers in the future. Oh, man. So sad that Exo Man of War meets New Kids on the Block did not happen. One of my favorite comics, one of my favorite bands of all time. Are they really a cons- that's a band? Hey, they got in the studio. They mixed their own tracks by their oh, third yeah. major album. <laughs> you, you know, I didn't know you knew this oh, much about oh, New Kids. Oh, hey, oh. oh, I was a little too deep into New Kids as a kid. I filmed music videos. I watched their pay-per-view concerts. Oh, my. 
I performed full albums. I would just put the tape on with my friends and we would do every song. Yeah. New Kids and Me, we go way back. So who, who was your favorite new kid? So this is kind of sad. And it took the form of me buying one of the new kids on the block dolls. But I liked John because he was the quiet one. <laughs> See, I like Jordan Knight myself. I was more of a Jordan Knight fan. I love his falsetto. I'm equally distasteful towards all of them so this is this is a fascinating episode we're learning new things about adam that it's really really diving deep i'm thirsty for more i need to know that's why i gotta go away after this episode all my secrets will be revealed and then i gotta disappear i just i just picture adam in his room watching Troop Beverly Hills while listening to New Kids on the Block and writing fan fiction about both at the same time. That was my life in 1990, I will tell you. Well, enough about me. We got another 90s icon to talk about in our table of contents because for issue number 28, yes, this is big, December 1993, who dares to jump upon the cover of Wizard? But I caramba, it's The Simpsons! More specifically, Bartman on a triple fold-out cover. Yes, this is a big, big deal. What they are announcing here is the debut of Bongo Comics, which are about to really take the world by storm here in 1994. Now, of course, by this point, The Simpsons have been a pop culture phenomenon for three years, and now it's time to get into comics. You know, after putting the feelers out with a one-off issue called Simpsons Comics and Stories, which I personally grabbed right off the rack. I actually have two copies in my long box now. I loved it so much. But Bongo Comics, again, we, we teased it a little bit uh, last episode. Bongo is the name of Matt Groening's one-eared bunny rabbit character from his Life in Hell comic strip. That's what originally gave him his fame before he got to go onto the Tracy Ullman show and do some crude sketches and a general idea for a family based on his own that became the Simpsons, but it's very exciting to me that bongo comics was something that was being featured especially this issue because i was so into the simpsons that when i saw this issue this is probably like the most pivotal wizard issue for me where after this point is where i bought it every single month for year after year after year like they hooked me 100 percent. i was in and out in and out from issue seven the first one i got and then to this and it became a, they, i said they know everything about me now they know i love comics they know i love the simpsons i will never stop reading this magazine but i'm curious for you guys with the simpsons how deep were you into the show the merchandise all of that eric was it a big influence for you uh, I wish. I didn't uh, see The Simpsons during its initial golden age. In fact, I actually caught up mostly thanks to Disney Plus having the 30-plus seasons archived. Wow. It's not part of your regular rotation of now. shows. Okay. Yeah, I know. It's unusual. <laughs> yeah, Steven, you love your TV. Where do you connect with The Simpsons? I was a gigantic Simpsons fan. From the Tracy Ullman show. That's when I started watching it. Wow. I was really excited for Simpsons Roasting on an Open Fire, so I watched that the night it aired. And then I was just, it was my favorite show to watch, like, as a kid. My friends and I would quote it constantly. I would pull sound clips in the early days of AOL, and i put them on AOL for people <laughs> to download. I was just, you know, all in on The Simpsons and all in on Bongo Comics. And actually, recently, my daughter got 
super into it through Disney Plus, and now she's watching it, just like devouring seasons. So it's really fun to revisit the show. The jokes, the jokes completely hold up. It's just such a great comedy series. Yeah, and interestingly enough, you know, Matt Groening mentions in this issue that it was totally on purpose that they infused the show with so many Easter eggs and references to pop culture and history and all those things that he literally predicted that 30 years from now, people will be watching the show and people that will be adults now will understand things they didn't understand back then. Like they knew what they were doing. That's what makes it so rewatchable. In fact, I just recently over the last few years finally got rid of my Simpsons tapes. I had literally probably about 30 or 40 VHS tapes filled with Simpsons that I taped off TV. Wow. In syndication on Sunday nights when the new episodes came out all the way up until 2000. Like I just, I just, that I was so deep into it. And unfortunately I cut out all the commercials. I didn't keep the, uh, the time capsule that it should have been. Uh, but yeah, so I I was like, I can't lug these around. I, I have to make way for a whole new VHS collection. <laughs> <laughs> but Michael, what about you? I'm so curious. Michael of the Simpsons. Honestly, the first time I ever saw the Simpsons was every like Christmas or like winter. We used to go up to my, my aunt's house up in Montreal, Canada. And we, my cousins and I were just hanging out and watching TV, and we saw the very first episode in French. Whoa! <laughs> That's and, unexpected. Yeah, and and so it was like it was weird because you know we had French television on, and then we switched over to the English version. They had the English version of the show on at the same time, and. We were all just kind of watching it, and I remember initially seeing it in French, like the first like five or ten minutes. Then we we went over to the English channel and watched it on the on the English side of it. And I really like my cousins were sort of like half paying attention, but I was really like zeroed in on it, and I watched it pretty religiously for a very long time. I'd never honestly bought a single comic. I do think at some point I did have a Bartman action figure. I did have several Bart Simpson t-shirts, like, you know, the Bart Simpson, you know, who the hell are you (laughs) t-shirt. Yeah. Um, And I had the Bart Man t-shirt. I really did like the show a lot. I didn't watch it all that religiously forever because I was also, at a time, I think, Lois and Clark, the new Adventures of Superman was on at the same time as it on Sunday nights. And I was like, I got to watch Superman, even though it was such an awful show. But I was like, (laughs) yeah, I, I really do like The Simpsons. I don't like it as much now but what i loved about it all the time were the halloween episodes and the episodes where they had special guests like who was the guy that always voiced homer's brother danny devito danny devito right we just watched that episode yesterday actually and like you know he invented he had them design the car for him and i always loved those episodes and a bunch of different ones. They had just different guest stars that would pop in and out. I mean, there's there's so much that was going on with The Simpsons, and yet they were taking a lot of the creative team that was working on The Simpsons in other media, specifically Steve and Cindy Vance that were a married couple, along with a guy named Bill Morrison. And they were the main creative forces behind The Simpsons Illustrated magazine, which, again, for me, was I had to buy it every month. I loved it so much. It was just this expansion universe of the simpsons
Simpsons that they took you into there. And then I would buy stuff like Bart Simpson's Guide to Life. I used yes. to have that book on the back of our toilet, and I dropped it in the toilet once and pulled it out and like dried it, you know, with a hair dryer. And I'm just like, <laughs> so I still have it. It's got like wavy pages, but I can't tell you how many times I've read that thing. And you're in on it. <laughs> well. <laughs> But they put a comic story into the magazine every once in a while, and they said they got a huge response. So in this article here, and they're telling the story of how they got such a huge response, they started thinking about doing comics. Bill Morrison drew a parody cover of Fantastic Four number one, featuring Homer as the monster rising up. Yes from the ground and it sparked the idea of doing a full comic book story that steve and cindy then fleshed out and that's what became you know simpsons comics number one now eric as i just said you've actually had some run-ins with bill morrison so what can you tell us about that that is correct i met bill morrison at a convention for the international society of character artists i can tell you that he is a fellow michigan illustrator and like you've said, he's famous for producing promotional art for The Simpsons, Futurama, as well as Bongo Comics. Uh, he told this story to a crowd about how even though he does the art, Matt Groening's signature appears on everything Simpsons related because of the result of a sweet deal that Matt got about retaining the publishing rights to his characters. It's a very Bob Kane situation. Mm -hmm. yes. Yeah. Or Walt Disney. Just thinking how no company worth their salt would uh, give him that kind of sweet deal again. Oh, uh, yeah, you can retain all the publishing rights to these characters for a TV show that eh, might only last a season. <laughs> you think Fox would have learned their lesson with the Star Wars rights, you know? But uh, no, they didn't. In addition to The Simpsons art, Bill had a long career with Disney, actually, producing posters for theatrical re-releases of their classic animated films, which gained him some unfortunate notoriety as he painted the VHS cover for The Little Mermaid, <laughs> the one that was famously pulled from circulation after people claimed that a castle in the illustration had a hidden phallic shape. Bill says there was no ulterior motive behind the shape whatsoever, but has since heard every type of conspiracy theory about how he was a disgruntled employee who painted it as a take that to Disney when nothing could be further from the truth. The, you know, Bill Morrison, for me, was just, yeah, the quintessential Simpsons artist. And this line is launching with four titles that are essentially drawn by him. We have Simpsons Comics, Bartman, Radioactive Man, and then even Itchy and Scratchy getting their own book. Now, most of these they're saying are going to be bi-monthly titles, but Simpsons Comics has a fun gimmick that set it apart because I was more into Bartman and Radioactive Man. That's what I was in. I bought every issue of those. They didn't last that long but simpsons comics the thing that kept me coming back was not the stories themselves because they always felt like standard this could have been an episode of the series but if you flipped the books around they had alternate covers with short stories in the back that were aping the styles of classic comics from different eras so like for example the first issue was supposed to be like an ec comic it was bart simpson's creepy crawly tales you know and you had homer on there the ghastly tale of unspeakable horror the 
the collector, you know, or crusty agent of clown. There is, you know, Chief Wiggum's pre-code crime comics and even Mrs. <laughs> Kerbopel as Edna, queen of the Congo. What in particular is interesting is in this article, Graining mentions the idea for Otto the Bus Driver's Crash Pad comics. But when it's actually published as one of the flipbook titles, it's just Bus Man. <laughs> With a very buff auto fighting off zombies. Uh, now, the group also says they're open to, open to having outside artists begin submitting work to join their team, but that it's actually harder to write or draw for The Simpsons in The Simpsons style than most people think. Eric, have you ever attempted this? Can you confirm that? While I myself have not tried to draw characters in The Simpsons style, Bill Morrison did let slip that the process of drawing celebrity likeness on The Simpsons in that style is actually pretty difficult because the characters don't have chins. So for the character designs on the show, you kind of have to cheat the angles to make sure that you're still maintaining the likeness when it comes to the guest star of the week. <laughs> now, Stephen, I know there's one story in particular from this article that stood out to you. What was that? Yes, and, and we talked about this. Um, I, I've thought about this story ever since I read this article. Matt Groening talks about when he was a kid, he and his friends had a clubhouse. It's kind of like over a bunker or something like that, and it was filled with old comic books. And then one day, someone got fed up with them going in this like little hole, so he cemented over the comic books. And he said, you know, oh, someday someone could find this treasure of old comics. And I thought about that all the time. I was like, one day I'm going to go there and bust <laughs> open that wall and get those 50s and 60s issues. Yeah, that's awesome, just to imagine what's hiding in there. Now, uh, last thing I'll just mention here about Bongo Comics, they had amazing staying power. So remember, this is launching, you know, end of 1993, Bongo Comics uh, debuting essentially in 1994. It ran... Until 2018, guys, is how long Simpsons Comics, you know, other titles came and went. But Simpsons Comics ran from this point all the way until 2018 when Bongo Comics finally shut its doors. And that is just an amazing, amazing run for a comic that really could have just been considered, you know, a licensing gimmick. But as they said here, that's the reason that Graining and his team wanted to not give the license to any of the many comic book companies that offered them a deal. They said, we want to handle this, make it special, make sure it's always, you know, the quality and standard of the show. And they, they did that for many years. So, yeah, we could talk all day about this, but we got so much more to get to. So, I'm, But I'm excited we got to give some attention to Bongo Comics. If you've never checked them out, do what you can to find them. But, Stephen, what's uh, next? Well, next is an interview with John Byrne about the newly formed Legend imprint, which we, which we reported on in the last issue. Byrne responds to comparisons to Image, saying that the legend creators are not trying to compete with Marvel by imitating them, and explains his animosity towards Image founders is based on the fact that they are not focused on quality storytelling, only flashy art. Legend is meant to re reinvigorate the art of quality comic book storytelling and be what Image originally claimed was their model, a bunch of happy-go-lucky freelancers who are just sort of hanging out together. <laughs> In one respect, Byrne is totally hypocritical in this article, saying he is not trying to be like Marvel when he announces Danger Unlimited, which is basically a Fantastic Four homage. Uh, speaking of his dealings with his former employer, Byrne also mentions that his book Next Men did receive a cease and desist letter from Marvel, because they were suing everybody at this time, claiming that... <laughs> 
next men sounded too much like X-Men when spoken. But then he explained the full title is John Burns next men and they left him alone. Finally, <laughs> Burn is asked why if he if his focus on, is on storytelling, the original issues of next men included mail away certificates for readers to get exclusive trading cards. Burns says it was an idea created by Dark Horse. And since it didn't interrupt the flow of a reader enjoying his storytelling, if the certificate was removed from the book, he didn't mind. And for those of you guys who don't remember, Adam forced me to read an issue of Next Men a few months ago, and it was utter torture. So if you want to go back and find an issue of Next Men and gouge your eyes out like I did, by all means, go right ahead. Well, we were just <laughs> having a discussion on, uh, on social media tonight about Bone, and I was trying to get people to convince us why we should read the Bone comics. But I, I would make a similar cry for people to read Next Men, because it's a pretty great series. It's, <laughs> it's, I may be the no, only one. It's, yeah, it's, it's stellar, all right. It's, you know, <laughs> it's Eisner-worthy. I was going to say, it sounds like John Byrne learned his lesson about titles from the Warriors of Plasm lawsuit you guys were talking about last week. <laughs> yeah, Warriors of Plasm, Plasma, it's, uh, you just, you can't win with Marvel these days, you're right. Yeah, but it's got me thinking about the rather amusing choices that are made with titles when an artist goes from Marvel to creator-own content. Like, <laughs> I don't think it's a coincidence that Todd McFarlane's title, Spawn comes right before Spider-Man alphabetically. Readers were already looking for his Marvel title and would see his new indie book right next to it. Yeah. Same with Rob Liefeld's Young Blood, that would have been on the same row of shelves as the X-Men titles. And I also wonder, is that why Spider-Man has a hyphen in his title to distinguish it from Superman, from which it only has a three-letter difference between the names? I feel like we're giving these creators and companies too much credit. <laughs> they just got lucky. <laughs> Though Next Men is quite the rip. That one's pretty close, yeah. That that one's, I mean, yeah. About young people with powers, uh, what are you doing, John? But they're John bald. You know. <laughs> at the beginning, at least. Very on the nose. Yeah. Now, next article is called Breaking from the Herd, and it's an interview with Joe Casada. He's back. Uh, where he basically covers all the stuff he's already talked about in past issues, because Wizard just keeps interviewing the guy because he's so hot, but he's relatively new to the comic scene without a huge body of work behind him, so there's a, quite a bit of repetition. Luckily, they start kind of going off of comics here and there, or getting deeper into his origin story and we get some insight on how he got his break now this is so interesting joe was working first at fao schwartz at a toy store but then he was also i don't know if it was simultaneously or what working at a lighting design store and a customer gave him a business card to call him when his track lighting came in <laughs> and joe saw that the guy worked for valiant comics so he asked if he could show him some samples because joe said he had been a painter up to this point but had recently been introduced you know to frank miller and the dark knight returns and all those types of stories he actually had no penciling samples to offer but they hired him as a colorist based solely on his paintings now moving off of comics and yet somehow still connected quesada mentions he is a musician and that valiant head honcho steve mazarski was actually his band's manager for a while but the music never got interest while instead his comics career started taking off he says quote there's nothing worse than being a struggling musician because you can be damn 
damn good. There's that word again. This this issue is damn, damn, damn. <laughs> Bart Simpson would be proud. But he said, because you can be damn good and never get noticed. In comic books, if you're damn good, you generally get noticed. <laughs> The funny thing I want to put about this about this article, I, I pulled it up. The two photographs they have of Joe Quesada is one is what feels like a band photo with his hoop earring and it's like in black and white. And the other one is him playing softball. <laughs> I don't understand it. <laughs> well, the softball thing, actually, if you read the letter from the publisher, is that the wizard staff had just played a softball game against the Valiant staff. So that's what that was from. So they just had pictures of the event. And they're like, drop it in there. Joe catching a ball. Doing some fielding. But as good as he was, apparently, at least in the early days, he said they were kind of thought of as peons. He got laid off from Valiant. But somehow, in the interim, got a gig drawing a books called Spelljammer and Question Quarterly at DC, and ultimately landed the job on the Ray, which I've talked about ad nauseum. But he mentions that the Ray is actually being collected in a trade paperback that he is providing a painted cover for, which turned out great. I have it. Of course I do. I love the Ray. <laughs> but after doing the Azrael one-shot and designing the Nightfall Batman costume, now he is back at Valiant doing Ninjack with writer Mark Moretti and his Pal Jimmy Palmiotti inking. And I love how they show what a hustler Joe Casada is at this point. And actually, uh, Steven and I watching the comic book show on YouTube and his interview, you see that he is just ninjack, ninjack, ninjack. I'm going to sell this book. The image guys are doing it. I could do it too. So this is how he goes. Quote, I don't think they're going to do this, but Value should be putting a Surgeon General's warning on this book because people are just going to spontaneously combust when they read it. Kids in comic shops are just going to go boom and that'll be it and that's why we gotta wrap the first issue of chromium it's gonna be that hot wear it as best as suit when you read it there's that kind of heat behind this book <laughs> oh my god wow. really pushing it pushing it Oof. now it should be mentioned that this issue of wizard actually features a giant fold-out poster of ninjack that has the valiant vision seal meaning you can see it in 3d oh jeez Joe Quesada gets so much attention as Marvel's editor and does so much publicity online nowadays that I actually forget he used to be quite a prolific artist at the company. And, you know, it's always great to hear industry break-in stories like this because it's different for each person. In fact, there's a joke amongst artists that once you make your way into comics, they board up the door behind you so that no one else can ever get in the same way. <laughs> Love it. Have any of you guys ever read Ninjack? Anybody? I read one issue when Valiant made its comeback about a decade ago. I picked one comic up on free comic book day, actually. It, I mean, it wasn't by Joe Quesada or anything. It was whoever was doing the book at that time. It's actually kind of a cool story. I didn't read anything in the 90s for it. Yeah, that was one of the books I started picking up, uh, you know, in the late 90s out of quarter vids, and I dug it. Actually, that's not true. I bought the first and second issue at the time they came out, but then I filled in gaps later on. And, you know, it's basically just like, what if James Bond was also a ninja? 
you know, it's basically what it is. Last thing I'll just mention here uh, about uh, Ninjak and all of that is I actually got an opportunity, like you said, about the reboot here of Valiant recently, Michael. They did these short films online. I don't know if you guys have watched them. I guess like a proof of concept, right? For I've a movie. I've watched a couple, yeah. And the guy who played Ninjak, he actually used to be the singer in a punk band, and then he got into acting. I think he was on the CW Arrow playing Deathstroke the Terminator, if I'm not mistaken, or what? No, Deadshot. I think he played Deadshot. Anyway, but he also played Ninjak in their little short films. I got yes, to interview yeah, him. you're right. It is the guy that played Deadshot. You're right. And so that was kind of cool. He was, a, he was a pretty awesome guy. To, I mean, he wasn't a super big comics fan or anything, but that was my connection. I was like, you played Ninjak! I used to read Ninjak! Steven, take us out of Ninjak into something else. So, Chronicling the Max is an interview with Sam Keith and the writer of the Max, William Mesner Loeb's, about their working relationship. Uh, it's a challenging collaboration at times, Mesner Loeb's admits. Sam is one of the most serious-minded people I've ever worked with. Mesner Loeb's describes his contributions as translations and interpretation, insisting that all the ideas are Keith's. Keith goes on to say, it's really hard to write something you give a damn about. Damn again. <laughs> I write this stuff down and send it to Bill. I'm tired. He's exhausted from analyzing every panel. In the end, I think it's very deep. And when the stuff comes out, it really seems trite to me after I read it. Okay. <laughs> With issue number four, Sam Keith took over the writing because I rewrote some stuff. And it was the first time I didn't run it by Bill afterwards. I would say, you didn't quite put your finger on it. Essentially, I wanted this. At some point, even Bill said, well, then say it. Keith also mentions an upcoming crossover featuring both Pit and the Savage Dragon. Keith also mentions the reason the Max didn't get dropped by Image, along with books like Shaman's Tears and Tribe, which recently got the axe, is that he releases the Max mostly on time, and the big complaint with the others was that they ship late. Scott McCloud, who wrote Understanding Comics, told Keith, The Max is a book that sells too well to be respected critically, but not well enough to be recognized in the market as a smash hit. It probably sells better than it should because of the image label. Like, I really can't complain. It's also mentioned that William Mesner Loeb's is now running Wonder Woman for DC and got a lot of flack from fans for a recent story where Diana got a job working at a fast food restaurant, but it was his attempt to show her as a more independent character. I actually bought that issue. I remember that one. Oh, those covers of Wonder Woman back in the day during that run were pretty epic. Yeah, they were cool. They were they were very like a realistic style. Yeah, Brian Ballard, I believe. Yes. So here's the question I have then for our artist of the crowd here, because, you know, Steven is a writer. Michael is a writer. I'm a writer. You're an artist. Would you feel it would be difficult to translate concepts and ideas in a written form for you? Does it flow more freely in an illustrative sense, Eric? I guess it really depends on the project have you ever been called upon to figure out any type of narrative plot or things like that in your work a few times i think that communication with your client is especially important because you've got to match the vision that's in their head and sometimes it can take a little bit of digging to get it out yeah and i love here how keith is you know he's just like so like he's like well it's, it's like this really epic story it's so important and man, that wasn't what i was going for well then you write it <laughs> and yet they're still working together so I just I just thought that was funny, like the, the relationship between the writer and the artist, where the, the artist really wants to be like all the other image founders, right? And have confidence that what I'm writing is awesome, it's great, but it seems like he maybe even second guesses himself in the end. And I'll give another shout out to William Mesner Lopes. He's another comic creator from right here in Michigan. So what is go it, it's gotta be in the water out there, you guys. Plus you got Robocop. <laughs> 
We, we should title this episode Damn Michigan. Yeah. Do <laughs> you think that's something? You should meet all the comic creators from Ohio. They used to be all from Queens and Brooklyn. Except for this guy. Our next article is about a guy from across the pond who became a comics legend in The Road to Rune. We have an interview with Barry Windsor Smith, and he is talking about leaving Valiant to do his new book for Malibu's Ultraverse called Rune. Now, Barry Windsor Smith mentions that when he quit Valiant, Todd McFarlane and Jim Lee were both trying to get him to work with them, but he turned him down. He just wasn't really interested in that unless he had full creative control over his project. He explains specifically, though, that he left Valiant because Steve Mazarski, there he is again, wouldn't even discuss negotiating his contract, even though the business side of Valiant were offering to make him a president when Jim Shooter was booted out as this villain who was ruining the company. But he learned that the offer of president was obviously no more than a title because they weren't taking him seriously. They were never going to pay him more. Uh, and speaking of which, Barry Windsor Smith says that Shooter was a bit of a tyrant. You know, we've been talking about this. Was Jim Shooter a bad guy? Why does he keep getting chased out of companies? And he says, well, he got mad at me because I wasn't following the stories that he was outlining as the editor for Solar Man of the Atom when the book launched, but I kind of always do things my own way. That's how I operate. But then he said once he personally started dealing with the business side of Valiant in Shooter's absence, he had more sympathy for Jim Shooter, realizing that both of their names were just being used to give credibility to the company that had no intention of backing them up creatively or financially. All the stuff going on like behind the scenes during this time, the business, the money that everybody was making and wanting to make was just, you know, driving people to greed and everything else. Now, Barry Windsor Smith admits that he started out, hey, as a Kirby clone. That's right. He loved Jack Kirby comics that he was reading in England in the 60s. And in the late 60s, he just decided, this is all I want to do is be a comics artist. He took off for New York City to get a job at Marvel and got hired on X-Men. Then he became like really the first superstar artist outside of Jack Kirby, of course, whose style was really being recognized at Marvel because he started doing the Conan comic book and did it for like two years. And he was able to stay on it and do whatever he wanted because Stan Lee didn't care about the book and Roy Thomas was the one championing it and Roy Thomas just said look Stan if the book fails, at least we won't lose that much money. <laughs> they couldn't afford to put John Romita on the book, but Barry Windsor Smith's this kid, I don't know, out of England, they don't have to pay him anything, and so he was working on it, but that led to him quitting comics for 10 years because he felt he just didn't have any control over his projects and that's what he really wanted but in the interim he did a few jobs for marvel stuff like machine man that miniseries is one of my favorites it's really cool if you guys have never checked that out eventually weapon x in marvel comics presents which is kind of what rocketed him back to superstardom in this modern era now i have to uh, do a little correction on my part I recall way back in maybe our first or our zero episode, I attributed that that Weapon X storyline to Jim Lee, saying it caught my eye as one of the initial things I ever saw in a comic book store. It really stood out. And I think it just goes to show what an influence Barry Windsor Smith had on Jim Lee. You look at their two styles. Are you very familiar with his work, guys? I mean, does the name even jump out at you? Oh, the name rings a bell for sure. I, I'm just, you know, enthralled by this photograph they have of him in this article where <laughs> it it looks borderline mugshot-ish. It's, 
it's not the most flattering picture of of him in this article, which is just kind of kind of weird. I can't put my finger on stuff that he's done, but the name rings rings a loud bell in my head. Yeah, for me, it's the Conan stuff. I recognize those covers. Well, of course, you were reading Grew the Wanderer back in the day. You loved Conan. <laughs> me and my brother were the only two Grew the Wanderer readers, so <laughs> ever. <laughs> so. Obviously, we knew we knew Conan. Yeah, I'm surprised to hear Smith described as a Kirby clone. I guess I hadn't seen samples of his earlier art until just now, but his uh, the body of work from his heyday shows a great deal of influence from classical pen and ink artists such as Howard Pyle, while his compositions have roots in fine art illustration like the Pre-Raphaelites or Art Nouveau. See, kids, these are the kind of conversations you can have with a degree in art history. <laughs> <laughs> I did reread the Weapon X storyline recently, and the complexity of the coloring in that uh, story is astounding, even by modern standards. The deliberate choices in pacing feel cinematic, and in a decade we attribute to indulgence and overhype in the comic industry this one raised the bar for quality craftsmanship. Yeah, well, it's really interesting because they said that he got brought in by the editor of that Marvel Comics Presents and basically, like, they're like, oh, yeah, it's going to be this all-star book. We're going to get all these big names from the past in. They're going to be able to do, you know, kind of their own creations. And he's like, that's not what it ultimately became. But what I got to do on it, they gave me free reign just to experiment. And yeah, like you said, with coloring and everything else. So for him, it really was just an artistic experimented journey. He didn't care that much about the story, but he thought it was cool that he was able to tell it however he wanted. Now, Rune as is the thing. He, he was actually in a recent issue of Wizard. The Malibu comics took out a three-page ad, and each page only had one part of his name. The first page was Barry. The second was Windsor. The third was Smith. Like, they were banking on this name. It meant something. And now that he's doing Rune, the way they're launching it is there are these backup stories in other Ultraverse titles, like Nightman number one, like in the back, that there's a Rune story that then is going to lead to the launching of his own series. Now, essentially, if you don't know about Rune, he's a character who is a vampire of sorts. He needs energy and blood to live but while seeking out a major energy source in the 50s he tried to absorb the blast of an atomic bomb and got cancer instead so now he's facing his own mortality as this dying vampire that's leading to all this other intrigue so he's he's morbius essentially well, yeah, I mean, yeah, I guess I guess you could say there's some connection there, but this guy's a lot more vicious than Morbius. Like, he's biting people's heads off. Did, did Rune ruin this guy's career? No, it was actually very, very well regarded, like, critically acclaimed. Really? During the, yeah, while he was working on it. It became, I remember back in the day, I never read it, because I was like, what's this monster? He's got these jewels that hang from his neck. I, it didn't appeal to me at the time, but I remember how much press it got in Wizard and elsewhere. People are always talking about Rune. So, I actually read several issues when we were covering the Ultraverse a, a couple episodes back, and I was really enjoying it, actually. It's, the only thing I'll say about him, at least during this time, is all his character's look the same like literally all the faces look the same like it was unfortunate outside of rune i couldn't tell anybody apart outside of gender you know but it turns out there was actually i think a story beat in there where some of the characters were actually clones so i was like oh okay mm. <laughs> that's why everybody looks the same 
Hey geeks, we're taking a break to tell you about our sponsor for this episode, Retrofied Magazine. What's so rad about Retrofied Magazine? Well, it's the quarterly fanzine that celebrates the retro pop culture you grew up with. From TV, toys, books, movies, fashion, video games, and more, Retrofied Magazine has the 80s and 90s pop culture coverage you crave. I've read their preview issue, and it's no exaggeration, this is a full-fledged digital magazine with layouts and articles that will hit your nostalgia button. What's even cooler is that the big cheese of Retrofied magazine is none other than Preston Burt, a past guest on Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. That's right, he's a 90s comics fan and wizard reader just like you and gets what we loved about our childhoods, including free giveaways. Oh yes, we have a special offer for two lucky Wizards listeners. Here's the deal. You can get a free download code and score a copy of their 52-page winter issue featuring an oral history of Reboot, you know, the first fully CGI cartoon series, plus articles covering classic video games, junk food, and yes, comic books. So how do you enter? We're going to make this easy on you. The first two listeners that send us a DM on Twitter at Wizards Comics or Instagram at wizards underscore comics, or an email to wizardscomicspod at gmail.com with the message, I want Retrofied Magazine. We'll get the code sent back to them in a reply with instructions on how to redeem it. Really, it's just that easy. If you don't win, that's okay. We'll still hook you up with a link to read their preview issue. Of course, you could also check out retrofiedmag.com for more details. And now, back to the show. I think we're going to talk a little bit more about Valiant. So, Steven, why don't you fill us in? Yay, Valiant. Speaking <laughs> of Valiant, Western Heroes delves into the origins of the characters licensed by Valiant from Western publishing like Magnus Robot Fighter, Torok, and Solar that began as Gold Key comic characters from 1956 to 1968 with beautifully painted covers. Torok, Son of Stone, originally ran for 131 issues fighting dinosaurs while trapped in the Lost Valley, ending in 1982. Wow, he had a pretty long run there yeah in contrast magnus robot fighter who did just as his name suggested from 1963 to 1977 lasted for just 46 issues and most of the later issues were reprints uh as with the majority of comics in the late 70s the characters were no longer selling and by 1984 western publishing got out of comics altogether in 1991 jim shooter licensed the characters for use in comics toys shirts movies video games and an open agreement with no time limit so valiant can use the characters in definitely pending approval from Western as to the content of the material. Dr. Solar, Man of the Atom, debuted just five months after The Incredible Hulk number 1 as a scientist who was dosed with a lethal amount of radiation that transformed him into an energy-based being primed for justice over 31 issues until 1982. Valiant editor-in-chief Bob Layton says there are no plans to use any more Western characters. Quote, Valiant feels that it can do just as well, if not better, by developing its own characters. Well, I have to say, and this has always bothered me since this first came up in our in our show. The title Magnus Robot Fighter is probably one of the most annoying titles I've ever heard in my entire life. <laughs> I hate it so much. When I saw it pop up in this article, I was like, oh no. Why do we have to talk about this? Well, and Michael, you must hate him so much, you block him from your mind because he comes up so much in the mini episodes in Amazing <laughs> Art. Every issue somebody is drawing him, you're like, this is this guy, I can't remember his name. He's punching a robot and it never connects for you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's the guy in the red shorts? Yeah, the guy with like the red tunic. 
Oh, that's okay. so ridiculous. That's, that's what I, what I was picturing in my head. This is who this guy is all this time? Oh, God. I'm so annoyed. So beloved, apparently, in this in this era. <laughs> this is like your Dark Man. This is the new Dark oh, Man. <laughs> yeah. This is the comic equivalent of it. Yes. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, I hate it even more now. I hate it even more. <laughs> I gotta say, though, guys, I recently, because we were doing so much Valiant and talking about it, I went to an antique store recently and I was able to pick up for pretty cheap an awesome issue of Dr. Solar, Man of the Atom, one of the old Gold Key comic books. And the painted artwork on these books was just fantastic. Like, I want to frame this cover. It was so great. And, you know, it was kind of like abstract looking in a lot of ways, kind of like a collage but man i mean if, if you didn't pick it up for those alone it was kind of like alex ross before alex ross now the other guy I mentioned there right was turok originally son of stone and now turok dinosaur hunter when valiant relaunches him gets a very famous video game possibly the most commercial of all the valiant era characters ultimately with a, with a legacy behind him but the dinosaurs become the focus of our next article of tyrants and Tyrant, which is an interview with artist Steve Bissett about his thoughts on creator rights and launching his own comic called Tyrant, which is about a dinosaur. We'll get to this shortly. Now, as an 18-year veteran who worked mostly on horror titles, including Swamp Thing with Alan Moore, Bissett says, We are working in an art form in which the potential has only been scratched. And we are working in an art form in which the potential has constantly been stymied and stifled by an industry that chews up and eats people. There are as many creators who are predators out there as there are publishers who are predators out there. Everything is set like... <laughs> the way that his speech pattern works here, it is fascinating to me. You know who he sounds like? Mr. Glass from Unbreakable. <laughs> mm. like, 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 you know, there's that scene in Unbreakable where David Dunn goes to the, the, the museum and he talks about how the art before it's colorized is like beautiful and then it's chewed up by the commercial machine when they make it into a cover yes that's what, that's what this guy sounds like he sounds like a supervillain. villain <laughs> he really could be because that's a hundred percent where this interview goes listen to this okay so this is how he talks about working on swamp thing and basically how it turns him into some type of junkie okay he says quote certainly the intense focus on a character that belonged to the company took its toll but what really led to absolute burnout was dealing with the business practices of this industry when I was done as an artist on Swamp Thing, I had no ethics left. I did not know up from down. I was screwing friends. The point where I stopped drawing comics for a time was when I was invited to work on an issue of Scout by my dear friend Tim Truman. It was the worst thing I could have done. I completely messed up the job. I was horribly late with it. I lied about sending stuff out. It was terrible. At one point, Tim was very honestly, he said to me, Steve, this is like dealing with an alcoholic or a drug abuser. Are you okay? And no, I wasn't okay. I was not drinking. I was not doing drugs, but I was not okay. <laughs> wow. This guy, I mean, I don't blame DC. This guy is dealing with some emotional issues when it, when it is that dire and it is, he has taken himself to the brink by drawing professional comics, you know? <laughs> like, I, I don't understand. I get it. I get it. It makes sense. <laughs> kind of interesting, though, like, the Alan Moore and Stephen Bissett Swamp Thing right now on Amazon Absolute Edition is like a hundred bucks. Like it's 
quickly, have you ever read any of the Alan Moore Swamp Thing run? I've always wanted to. I've read like a, a an issue here or there that I was able to pick up, but I've never read like a full run. I I, I read some of it, mostly that like Joe had told me to read. It is really really fantastic, and the art is terrific. I'm just I'm fascinated by this whole you know backstory that I didn't know about this this guy now that I want to like I want to dive deeper into the madness and I want to know what the hell's going on. <laughs> Yeah, likewise. I've always wanted to read Swamp Thing. Has your art ever driven you to madness, Eric? (laughs) Were you screwing friends? (laughs) I've had some tight deadlines, that's for sure. (laughs) Uh, Now, based on this experience and how harrowing it was, Bissette is now only interested in the world of self-publishing, so he has created Tyrant about the birth, life, and death of a Tyrannosaurus Rex. Mm-hmm. Bissette says because he got to have fun, though, working with Alan Moore, Rick Veitch, and Jim Valentino on Image's 1963 project, which we talked about, he found his love of comics again and is ready to put all his energy into Tyrant, for which he is doing mountains of research on paleontology. He is learning everything there is to learn about dinosaurs. By issue 8, though, the dinosaurs only five days old and the artist says he's getting encouragement from service creator dave sim to make it a 15 to 30 year commitment to complete this book so he's the alan grant of comics yes <laughs> it's almost like uh you know the the, the movie boyhood where he just has to keep yeah. revisiting this this dinosaur character he's the richard linkladder of comics <laughs> And he says he does have a finite end in mind. He just doesn't know how long it'll take for him to tell the whole story. Also, he is very clear. He doesn't want to sell the rights for a movie because they would just be buying the name and it would bear no resemblance to his work. Don't worry, Steve. Nobody is going to be asking you for the rights to this. (laughs) Hyrant. You never know. I know. One of these days, if we're desperate for content. 30 years later, we hear Netflix buys the rights. (laughs) It's like Baby Yoda, but a baby T-Rex. Yeah. That's the pitch. The cover pick looks like a a crocodile with a horn on its nose. Have you seen this cover? It looks like a crocodile or an alligator. Yeah, I mean, according to his research, I guess, maybe that's what dinosaurs really looked like. (laughs) I guess so. Oh, yeah, there it is. Beautiful. Yeah. Now, uh, one thing I'll, I'll lead back into here also is we have the second edition of the Speak Up feature, which is, you know, they've been interviewing everyday comics readers focused on a specific topic. And in this particular issue, they are dealing with comic economics, which I think it should have been comics economics. That would have made more sense. But what are you going to do? So basically what they say is they're talking to these guys, Bruce and Mike, who explain that they have stopped buying books based on the character or title alone. Just because they like that character or title at one point, they're not going to buy it blindly. They've decided they're going to buy things based on creative teams because they found that once their preferred artist and writer combos leave, they lose interest and they're just wasting their money. They're not enjoying it anymore. They'll pay whatever the price is for creators with a proven track record. They also admit that they will spend more money per issue if it's a limited series that they can basically budget and say, okay, I know it has an end. So, for example, at this time, Hulk Future Imperfect has a real hot creative team with Peter David and George Perez. So Marvel was pricing it at five ninety-five an issue, which was quite a bit back in, in the 93? day. In 93? 
Yeah. Yeah, wow. that was a King's Ransom. What was the average price? Like a dollar fifty? Unless it was an image book. Yeah. So yeah, buck fifty is probably the range. Buck twenty five, buck fifty. Yeah. But like, but this is funny. This is what I've been saying for a while now. Is like, you know, I've essentially in 2021, I, I'm stepping away from reading Marvel and DC right now because they're literally rehashing old stories and it's got to the point where I'm sick of it. They're doing a, you know, a clone saga for Miles Morales. It's literally the exact clone saga of, of Peter Parker's just with a different Spider-Man. And I'm, I'm done. But I've been saying for a long time now, for ancillary characters, let's say like a Green Arrow, for example, they should have a creative team that are popular or whatever, do like a six-issue run, and then they're done with that character, and they jump onto another character, and kind of like refresh these characters that they try to do long-run books for that always fail, but do a short mini-series type of a thing with, with popular characters, you know, get people buying more books. This is what, what they're saying, essentially. I, feel. I mean, when you buy comics, whether or when you were buying more regularly, Steven and Eric, what was your main draw? What was pulling you in to buy the book? The artist. Okay, of course. Makes sense. <laughs> Funny for me, it was the characters and the storylines. You know, I got really into the... In this era, I got really into the Emerald Twilight storyline. And that was one that I just, like, you know, had to buy every issue of. And uh, the Fantastic Four, Death of Reed Richards storyline. Yeah, and I will say that's the same for me. Like, I really would only buy a comic if I knew I was going to read it and reread it. In fact, over the years, you know, Michael, you've told us so often you have boxes and boxes of comics you've never read. I can't imagine that because for me, if I'm not going to read it, I will get rid of it. It's literally taking up space and I'll just be like, yep, I don't need it anymore. But once I've read like a storyline, I'm like, yes, I love that. I'm going to read it and reread it. I'm going to hang on to it. So yeah, that that's definitely where I I always falls if I like the writer, I like the, you know, like they're saying here, the creative team, and I'll stick with it for as long as they do it. Just like, uh, you know, I've talked about it in the past on our, some of our uh, YouTube videos, but Earth X and then Universe X and Paradise X, you know, like they were these, like for years and years, Alex Ross uh, was was collaborating with a guy. Their work together really was amazing. And so I, I stuck with that for a long time, you know, so this uh, definitely has played out for me in that way. But speaking of Alex Ross, Stephen, we got some interesting news from the past here. This is giant news from the past, breaking from the past. As we close out this segment, Wizard News reports that Marvels by Alex Ross and Kurt Busaic will retell the early tales of the Marvel Universe from the perspective of a man on the street in fully painted panels. Already announced before the book even hit shelves as the sequel, Marvels 2, which will still be written by Kurt Busaic, but the painting will reportedly be handed, handled by Tristan Shane, not Alex Ross. Marvels 2 is planned to cover the darker side of Marvel Comics with the Punisher, Ghost Rider, Daredevil, Hulk, Wolverine, and the Dark Phoenix Saga. But this sequel project never happened. Yeah, have you guys ever heard about this before? No, not Marvels 2. Um, they're doing they they did sort of like a redo of Marvels last year, but it, but Alex was, was only doing the covers and it wasn't the interior. Yeah, there was like a mini issue with the X Men at Rockefeller Center for Christmas. I actually picked that up. It was like the seventies X Men. Now I did. There was a sequel comic, but to my knowledge, it was just a one-off, and it was called Ruins. I don't know if you guys have ever seen this. I've got it in my long box, but it was basically a really dark version 
of Marvels where, you know, you had Phil, you know, from that story, the photographer, going to visit the Hulk. But the Hulk was like this guy who was just like all covered in tumors and cancer because he was exposed to radiation. He went and say it was the same thing. They had these camps for all these Cree refugees, including Marvel, that got like space cancer and they were all in this camp. It was it was so depressing. I was like, why did they put this out? Like it, it was some sort because again it, it was presented exactly like the Marvel style book with that clear cover and then it was a painted cover you know and everything but it was just like so tragic and it wasn't Alex Ross you know it was somebody else doing the art but I was fooled into thinking that was Marvel's too back in the day yeah you know it's interesting because I, I just got the Marvel's trade paperback for Christmas uh, and I read the original issues when they first came out I bought them and like Marvel's number two was the first comic book that made me cry. The storyline with the little mutant girl in his basement. It just made me very emotional. And then rereading it, I was getting emotional. And I started to be like, well, whatever happened to that girl? <laughs> not not like that character, like that girl. So I looked it up and they have like continued that character in other Marvel storylines. Oh, so I'm not sure how much. Uh, like Phil Sheldon's been in other stuff besides Marvels and 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 what you just mentioned, right? I don't know. Like I said, he was in that Ruins book, and I if they've worked him into later stuff, I've not come across it. So it's interesting though that you mentioned that particular cover to Marvels two and that storyline. The one time that I submitted a photo to Wizard for the Homemade Heroes contest, I had custom painted an angel, and I I took my Flash, my Toy Biz Flash action figure i repainted it in the yellow and blue x-men uniform made an angel put wings on him and then i sculpted out of clay the little you know mutant girl or put her in his arms and then i photographed oh, wow. it against a blue sky i did not win the contest i don't know how that's an amazing thing come on wizard but but that was very inspirational to me as well that particular story yeah yeah yeah, Marvels was such a great use of Alex Ross's talent to present that sort of Norman Rockwell style idealism, especially in an era when, you know, grim and gritty was all over the shelves to look back nostalgically and wistfully at Marvel's most iconic gold and silver age moments with that I witnessed history recollection in the vein of Forrest Gump that came out that same year. I'm really glad we didn't get a full sequel focusing on darker characters because what you're describing with this ruins issue sounds quite depressing. Yeah, I mean, it, like you say, Alex Ross, this really was his coming out party and it was so cinematic, you might say. So, Michael, why don't you take us into... Heroes in Motion. Well done. (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Podcast strikes again. (laughs) So... The Hollywood Heroes section by my pal Andy Mangles disappears from this issue because I was looking for it. I couldn't find it. And going forward as well, as he jumps ship to write for comic book magazine competitor Hero Illustrator, making my job a whole lot harder. By that, I mean having Adam tell me what to say. (laughs) (laughs) The movie news is kind of my thing, and now I have 
Nothing to report on. That tracks. Thanks a lot, man. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, Wizard Editor Patrick Daniel O'Neill got to visit the set of Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman, which I, funny enough, mentioned earlier, uh, and, and describes each of the title characters' apartments, Lex Luthor's office, the Kent farmhouse, and the Daily Planet newsroom. Sadly, no sightings of Terry Hatcher are reported. Uh, Lois and Clark, that was such a... It was a quaint show, wasn't it? <laughs> Produced by a woman named Deborah Joy Devine, who was also responsible for creating the TV show Early Edition, which, if oh. you're not there, was a show about a man who received tomorrow's newspaper today. <laughs> I loved Early Edition. I was a big I, Early Edition fan. I loved that show, too. I watched it a lot. I liked that yeah. show. It was very quantum leapy. Yes. Who yeah. played Lex Luthor in that show, in, in Lois jo- and Clark? John Shea? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's right. I forgot all just about popped that. It, oh, just popped in there. Because he, he, he wasn't bald in that show, right? Until he later. Eventually, they eventually made him bald. Yeah, because it always <laughs> irritated me that he wasn't bald in the show. And I was like, that's not right. That's wrong. He wasn't uh, bald probably. in the comics at that time either, was he? He was like yeah, uh, post-Christ, he had that full head of red hair. Yes, yes. Because he was in that cloned body, yeah. Right. Paul right. Luther never sails in movies or TV shows. <laughs> they have a hard time convincing actors to go bald for Luther. There was also a part in the comics during the like reign of Superman where Lex had a full head of red curly hair and a beard too. Mm-hmm. Do you remember this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's what I'm saying. He was pretending to be his own son. Right. And oh, he was yeah. dating Supergirl. Mm-hmm. But the, but it was but but it was the not the real Supergirl. It was the like Matrix Supergirl. The Matrix Supergirl, yeah, yeah exactly. Okay. Total, total weird sidetrack, but I just, you know, I had to get all that clarified. Anyway, getting back on track, Milestone Media, the imprint that produces comic featuring Icon, Static, Hardware, and more, are announced to be in development for TV and movie deals. Also, Paramount Pictures is reportedly making a movie based on The Shade, a concept by Jim Owlesi. Owlesley, who becomes Christopher Priest. These days he's known as Christopher Priest, yeah. All right, fair enough. <laughs> and Milestone founder Dennis Cowan. Yep. That will star Eddie Murphy as an urban vigilante. Of course, much like Todd McFarlane's urban superhero movie project The Pulse announced in last issue, this too never happened you know i would actually like to see some of the milestone characters get some sort of movie or tv thing because like like i don't know did you guys watch static shock as a kid i too did do a few uh, you know episodes but i only ever watched batman beyond so <laughs> i i liked static shock and now there's rumors that they're gonna do a static movie or e- either that or direct to uh hbo max but set it in the future and have Michael Keaton Batman be his mentor. Uh, we talk okay. we talk about Michael Keaton Batman a lot in the Michael Keaton Batman movie episode. <laughs> <laughs> Static Shock wait, Static is the guy who in like a previous uh issue of Wizard when they were talking about the development, he had like a Malcolm X hat on. Yep. Yes. Okay. He had a very different look, you know, in the early 2000s when his cartoon was happening. Yes, and now he has, like, a blue lightning bolty kind of thing. And he flies on a, a, like, usually a sewer drain lid. (laughs) Okay. 
he like uses the static electricity to like use it as like a hoverboard almost, which I I always thought was kind of cool. I like that. And that is my random babbling for Heroes in Motion. (laughs) Steven, what do we have next? Well, we're going to take you into Gambit's deck of cards. So Marvel is releasing their Fleer Ultra set of X-Men cards, which is the first outing since Marvel bought the trading card company. But that's the only details available at this time. Adam's copy of issue number 28 came with an uncut preview card of the 1994 Fleer Ultra X-Men cards in a smaller format, revealing that the cards are all painted. However, this issue of Wizard came packed with Brigade and Mad Men trading cards, no X-Men. Yeah, so whoever sold me this issue 28 copy just inserted this random piece of promo material. Uh, But I'm very curious for you, uh, Eric, are are you very influenced by painting styles, or do you find more like pen and ink styles? Like, what what gets you excited? Oh, pen and ink is my jam as far as uh, personal influence. But, you know, like I've said, I have a degree in art history, so I'll take in paintings for influence every now and then. And were you buying a lot of trading cards back in the day and admiring the art? I'm afraid not. Not that kind of collector, okay. Oh no, I I got the issues where you got more than one illustration per page. There you go, better value, better value. Exactly. So uh, meanwhile, Marvel's old partner Skybox are releasing X-Men Series 2, which seems strange since they are now the competition. The set will feature a special 3D Wolverine hologram. I was once at a convention when I saw two dealers argue and they used the words 3D Princess Leia hologram in the argument. I always thought that was very funny. They were just like yelling at each other about a 3D Princess Leia hologram. Anyway, uh, Defiant is releasing another zero-issue card series based on Dark Dominion with an interesting gimmick that involves a special lens card that when placed over the others reveals the Dark Dominion hidden in the art. Also, even though he is no longer the artist on the series, there is a special chase card that takes the form of original art by Steve Ditko. Oh, that's kind of cool. Wizard of Cards reports that since the Deathmate books from Image have been late in actually being released, Tops is holding off on releasing their tie-in trading cards. Evil Ernie is getting his own 100-card set, as is the Creator's Universe set of cards we reported on last issue, which includes 30,000 cards signed by the artists of original superhero characters that no one's heard of. <laughs> but if you don't care 30, about... 30,000 cards. 30,000. That, that's not the full set. That's just there'll be 30,000 printed that get signed. But if you don't care <laughs> about their creations, at least the cards include a 22 karat gold foil stamping. Couldn't bump that up to 24 karat, huh? Uh, <laughs> so 1994 is shipping up to be a big year for trading cards as Simpsons cards based on Bongo Comics are announced. A DC Comics set, which will finally include Batman characters this time. Malibu Comics Series 2 and more Marvel sets through Fleer. Adding to the attitude of Wizard, this is the first issue where the trading card price guide features funny captions under pictures of trading cards. None of them are terribly funny, but it's the beginning of a trend that bleeds over into the comic book price guide. Now, I have to offer a correction here because I did go back to issue 27 and it actually started there. So that was my bad on my research. But either way, for those of you who are sticklers for that sort of thing. The funny thing about this is we read a letter earlier from a guy complaining that they're not snarky enough 
But yet, <laughs> they're, they're being more snarky in the price guide. Like, pick a look. <laughs> he just didn't get to the price guide. He's like, ah, moving on. <laughs> Do you understand. want me to find this guy on Facebook and you can ask him all these pertinent yes. questions? I want to get him on a mini episode and be like, bro, what is going on, dude? I need to know the truth. <laughs> got to find him. Well, speaking of the snark, you know, sometimes you've got to get some attitude from a, from a different source. So we're going to bring you Guy Gardner's Gimmicks a go-go. How bizarre. The aforementioned Ninjak number one comes out this month with a chromium cover, and Wizard is running a contest in this issue where a grand prize winner gets an uncut sheet of Ninjak number one chromium covers framed and autographed by Joe Casada and Jimmy Palmiotti. So I just think that's pretty cool. Can you imagine having that on your wall? Just as these full wraparound covers of Ninjak all on, on a sheet. Now, Bongo Comics has announced that each of their books will include a jumbo fold-out poster that can be assembled into a, quote, ultra-jumbo Bongo Universe mural. That is actually, you see it on every issue of their number ones. You know, giant Bartman pull-out poster inside. Part three of an ultra-giant four-part Bongo Universe poster. So all of my issues now do not include the poster because I definitely assembled that mural and put it on my wall as a kid. Like, I... lived for those posters yeah but i did not keep them unfortunately i had a bartman and radioactive man poster that i bought when i lived in los angeles as as an adult male and hung (laughs) on my wall and and i I don't know what my wife thought when she met me and came over and saw that i had a (laughs) bartman and radioactive man poster i still have that oh it's a good i must have had it as a kid and then i rebought it as an adult I would imagine. So now also they mentioned that a Radioactive Man number one features a glow-in-the-dark gag gimmick. If you don't know, basically there's a big nuclear explosion in the background where he got his powers. And then if you turn off the lights, his skeleton is glow-in-the-dark. So it's a pretty cool effect. It was amazing. I loved that gimmick. While Bartman features a chrome ink enhancement, you know, that he's like about to fall into a vat of chromium ink, you know, silver ink. Uh, But their justification for the gimmick is that it's tied to the story within, so they don't feel it's a cash grab. Now, Superman number 695 features a, quote, multi-level foil embossed enhancement. Now, I had to look this up the image that we're seeing there is a metallic robot that superman is fighting i'm assuming on some panel and so what you see is you see superman from behind and then he's looking into the robot's shiny body and you see his expression in his face you know looking back at you from the robot in the reflection but then also it says that the issue he's fighting lobo so i don't know what the robot has to do with anything (laughs) now iron man number 300 features a foil embossed cover you know the the title and a few pieces of the armor and things like that um but it's a story with the iron legion where it says that tony puts all his supporting cast into old iron man armors i really want to read this issue now this sounds really cool now not a gimmick per se but avengers West Coast number 102 is announced as the very last issue of that title before it starts over and becomes Force Works, which we've talked about recently as well. So kind of a gimmick. It's our last issue. Better pick it up. 
Now, Nova is also getting his own monthly title for Marvel Comics, and Nova number one has some shiny gold cover enhancements again on his armor on the title logo. Now, Solitaire number one is the newest character in the Ultraverse line, and there's a collector's edition package that says it has an actual playing card inserted into it. And I want to see this, because I'm just like, is it a playing card that is, like, branded Ultraverse, or is it just literally they took a pack of cards and threw it in there you know like yeah we can just throw a card in here it's oh his name is solitaire get it and i also have a limited edition copy that's got like a gold foil seal and it's numbered as it like i got it for a quarter so you know (laughs) do with it what you will now also though i doubted it last episode according to wizard news revolutionary comics claims that their special edition autographed leather bound collection of kiss comic books are a go it's gonna have rare unreleased tracks on a cd and be autographed by the band i still have found no evidence that it was actually produced so again i think they were promoting it and hoping to tell gene simmons like do you see everybody's excited for it you gotta let us print this up forget about it but you could sign it in your own blood it'd be great (laughs) no thank you this is something i have been waiting to talk about for so long when it comes to crazy gimmicks but wizard is trying to get into the collectible jewelry game with limited production wizard collector rings with two different designs in sterling silver and then another design in 10 karat gold the prices range from 49.95 to 259 dollars and 95 cents in 1993 who bought this nobody (laughs) could you imagine if somebody was like hey you know what instead of my high school graduation ring i'm gonna get a wizard ring yes (laughs) i actually would have preferred the wizard ring to my high school graduation ring mine too i don't even i think i threw mine away i could care less about that stupid thing (laughs) the problem is i have looked for these for a while and if i find it i will buy it even if it goes for that (laughs) 259.95 you know like that's where the patreon money's gonna go so i can walk around with a ring and punch people in the face and it'll say (laughs) wizard backwards on their forehead like the phantom garab sheamus if you're listening if you have one of these rings i will buy it off you to give it to adam just <laughs> in general i would like to hear from anybody who bought any of these rings please contact the podcast i want to know why what was going on in your life that you needed this yeah i mean it is an exciting offer that nobody was interested in for sure but nowadays i mean that's a collectible we will never see again so please please if you have any leads let us know but now michael let's take us into something that was a little easier to find in stores let's dive into asriel's action figure fury Last issue, Wizard announced a custom Ghost Rider action figure contest sponsored by Marvel. In this issue, Malibu's Ultraverse wants in on the promotional fun. Whoever creates the best rune or prime action figure will win a framed page of original Ultraverse art signed by the artist. Everyone else gets a certificate of participation. If I see one custom rune or prime action figure 
in this upcoming future magazines, I may buy it and set it on fire and, and put it on YouTube. <laughs> I swear <laughs> to God. This isn't Magnus Robot Fighter, Michael. I swear. <laughs> oh, man. If I see one of them, hey, look, I made a crime and rune. Here you go. I'll go on eBay. I'll buy it. I'll burn it. And you'll see it on YouTube. And those, wow. uh, those listening to Patreon, I'll give you the uncensored one where I'm cursing up a storm about it at the same time. <laughs> There you go. All right. Good. There, I got that off my chest. Great. Fantastic. Very little superhero or comic-based action figure news happening this month. But the stats on the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles line by Playmates are revealed stating that there are 149 Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle figures and 29 accessories. That's a lot of titles. <laughs> Very nice. Well done. And for those interested, in a future Patreon video, I have got a Michelangelo you've just got to see. <laughs> oh, boy. It is. Woo! It's, it's in real good shape, let me tell you. There is a small announcement for Toy Biz that there are two 10-inch X-Men figures of Cyclops and Sabretooth, which seems like an odd pairing. Swapping Cyclops for Wolverine would probably make a lot more sense, if you ask me. Right? I, I don't understand why Cyclops and Sabretooth. Wouldn't it be like, who is Cyclops' archenemy? Does he even have one other than maybe himself? Uh, every woman he marries or His dates. His children, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. They all turn on him eventually. Eventually, yeah. So it's time for... Robin's Reading Rainbow. Man, I gotta tell you, we have got a book to talk about that we've been teasing for a little while. Now, you might recall... Several issues back in Wizard in mid-1993, they announced a contest called The Good Guys. It was The Good Guys Casting Call. And the whole concept behind it was that you could be drawn into a comic book. Specifically, they were aimed at the younger readers. And to enter, you had to actually come up with a superhero persona, design your costume, explain your powers in a bio, and then actually draw a multi-panel story featuring you as that hero. So it was very involved to prove you had what it took to be a member of the Defiant universe. Ooh, very prestigious. Warriors of Plasm, <laughs> uh, Dark Dominion, <laughs> other stuff. War Dancer, I think, was one, you know? And so it's one of those things where they said, I was reading in the, in the backup to the issue, that thousands, they said the response was overwhelming. So Defiant had everybody's ear, being in Wizard, and in co-collaboration with them, yes, Garib Seamus was one of the judges to vote on who got to be part of it. And so it was one of those things where people were excited about it, get to be in a comic officially. And we're going to talk about the other media and hype that surrounded this. But today we are talking about The Good Guys, number one. So I have a lot of thoughts about this. And my first thought right out of the gate was, this is drawn as if it is right out of King of the Hill. It's like they hired the artist from King of the Hill and drew this. That's what it feels like. It's interesting. Interesting take. The art was not what I 
thought was up to the snuff of 90s comics. It almost felt like when you'd buy like a cheap movie adaptation comic book. Yeah. yeah. Well, like that's, I, I'm wondering if that was on purpose. Jim Shooter said in an interview that the artist, his name is Gray. That's not his real name. He is a professional comic book artist who did not want to be credited for this book. Always a good so sign. That's not so a I good start. <laughs> and they also said that they created the first issue and then after the contest was over, then he drew in the likenesses to their faces. But the bodies and everything are very associated. You know, was they're not like generic kid bodies at all. Right. Some of the you know, female characters, you know, you're like, whoa, okay. So they definitely knew what they were doing. So I don't know how true that was, but that was how they reported it. But yeah, Michael, what was your take as you opened the book? So my first thought is I really like the title, The Good Guys. I don't know why. It just it just was a good title, even though it's not very creative in any way. I, I like the title a lot. My first major thought was there is so much information of like who's involved in this book. The first mm-hmm. two pages, it's like littered with it. Like who is in involved in this story and i was like whoa they're really trying to like give everybody credit anybody who you know looked at this thing got credit my second thought was how did they get the ability or the rights to use other intellectual properties in the background like there's pictures of superman and batman and wonder woman and you name it like every single character in this is like you know they reference mile high comic and you see yeah you know i i didn't understand that how, guy how gardner is in there they, they mentioned robocop and iron man yeah, I, you know. guys i wrote a full list because it is ridiculous how many actual intellectual properties like you're saying of other companies are name checked or literally shown yeah okay so he, here's how here's where it goes so as far as like comic character images we have a batman poster is better we have a she-hulk poster at the comic shop we have robocop iron man being mentioned young blood there's a shaft poster from Youngblood. Wonder Woman gets name checked. There's a cutout of Wonder Woman. There's a Punisher t-shirt in the background. There's Lobo. There's Green Arrow. There's the Justice Society of America Deathstroke. Punisher 2099. Jack Kirby's Secret City Saga. Actual covers that they were just photos that they put right, in. Right behind them. I saw that. I was like, yeah. they- Storm, Colossus, and the Predator. And even they had a moment in which you had Goro from Mortal Kombat as I a- was going to say that that was crazy i, I couldn't that. believe they, they put because they referenced mortal Kombat early and then all of a sudden goro shows up yeah i was like how did they not get sued for this now that one is very tricky because i believe malibu at the time was publishing a mortal Kombat comic book so it's really odd that yeah that like defiant somehow also got the right maybe they just do like some type of like parody or some type of intellectual property law now one in particular that i had to bring up for you guys just to mention in the second issue this one is for steven steven's day job he works in the realm of daytime talk shows you know and at this time in the second issue there is a special cameo by someone i believe you've done some work for steven okay did i miss this montel williams oh i've never actually worked for montel Oh no, no Montel! Oh, no, too bad. They no. Have a, I know a, people who a have a picture of a basketball player in here too. Yeah, in issue two, it's so weird. I, I just yeah, didn't... their whole point was they wanted to make it as real as possible. Jordan yeah. is in there. Yeah, <laughs> I just. Uh, but Stephen, I'm curious for you as we get into the story. What was your takeaway, like just from the opening, like origins? What, what did you think about that? Well, first of all, let me just point out: as soon as I saw that it takes place in Anaheim and the. Opening 
opening passage is making fun of Rob Liefeld, I was like, okay, now I see why Adam chose this for us to read. (laughs) But the weirdest thing to me was how they got that magic box that gives them their origins. They just like knock on an older crazy lady's door and she invites them inside and there's like all these missing paper boys in the neighborhood. It's really creepy and weird. It's two brothers. There's an older and younger brother. They're into comics. They want to go to Mile High Comics for the Rob Liefeld signing, which, by the way, was a real event. Oh, okay. Advertised in comics of the era. You could pull up the ad. But yeah, so so that was actually happening. And so, yeah, but it's so weird when they walk up there because he has a paper route. So he's just there to collect his money. And this lady in like, you know, just like house stress type mm-hmm. of thing, you know, she's just like sobbing and crying. And it really seems like the setup, it's much too dark. Yeah. For this comic. And it's not very well set up. It's just like he gets a box and then he trips and falls in the comic book store and they all go in and they they just casually name each other. I'm very good at naming things. So you'll be (laughs) nobody and you'll be this character. It was, but the other thing with that, with that is everybody's powers are essentially the X-Men and and maybe She-Hulk. Let's go through that. Yeah. So, so the, team here there's seven kids that go to this signing at mile high comics the one kid brings this magic box they got from this crazy lady <laughs> and she's like hundreds of years old and she's been waiting for her lover to come back and then he trips this box opens up and they call it the wish bomb and just mm-hmm. so you know part of the contest for the kids who won is they got to go to mile high comics to this event where the wish bomb was actually opened and set off again to blur the lines <laughs> between reality and fiction okay so that then all the kids in the vicinity there's select kids that have like a wish in their head and their hearts and they are the ones who are imbued with the powers so Hmm. these powers that we have here okay the first one is spellcaster now he's the youngest boy but he's the most powerful he's the one who believes the most right Mm -hmm. so what what powers do you guys remember that he has Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. Yeah. Okay. He could teleport people. Okay. And he could shoot fireballs and seemingly just bring the images in your mind to life because they really learn about their powers when he opens this doorway and they go into this like video game realm. And that's where they fight Goro and some like scorpion cloud monster. See, to me, that felt like they were going into the danger room. Like they literally copied off the danger room. Yeah. Um, so that was Spellcaster. His brother, his older brother, decides to name himself Scrag. <laughs> I don't know what that means. It's just a total made up name, Scrag. You're uh, from California. Was it like a California thing back then? Yeah, sorry. I, I won't claim responsibility for that one. <laughs> well, isn't there? No. Okay. There was something about Wolverine, how he doesn't call people Bub anymore. Yeah. So, so Scrag is just like strong and agile. And so is this girl named White Crane. Yes. She picks for herself. So she's an Asian girl and they fight over a, cl- a copy of the Claremont Miller Wolverine miniseries at Mile High Comics. They both won it. And uh, she says that she's naming herself White Crane because it's it's a Asian thing. Yeah. But not an Asian. It, like the, the wording was strange. 
the next guy is named Recon, and he's kind of older. He's a little bit taller. Any idea what Recon is in reference to, guys? What power he might have had? A, a standard superhero power that really only one of them has. Is he the flight guy? Yeah. Okay. So he could fly, and he has supervision, you know, so he can see from great heights. Oh, yeah. Okay. Right. <laughs> the other one is Front, okay? And, and they offer different names for him, and he says he wants to be called Front because it's a hood thing. Okay, it's very 90. <sighs> That it's a hood thing. <laughs> yeah. Need the car crash uh sound. Yeah. <laughs> but he actually I feel like has a pretty cool power where he can create invisible, indestructible armor around himself. So he can't get hurt in any way and he's stronger because he's so like, you know, stable, I guess, is what you would mm-hmm. say. Okay. All right, fine. And Flex, I think you guys might know which character was called Flex. She's the She-Hulk. Yeah, she's the She-Hulk. Wannabe. Yeah. yeah. So she's a girl named Laura. She's the most unique of any of them because, yeah, like she says, I'm super into bodybuilding. I'm a little bit older than everybody else. I want to be like She-Hulk. I want to be like Wonder Woman. So people will notice me because I'm buff. And there's like, everybody comments on it all the time. And her dad is in her life and he supports her. Mm-hmm. her physical training and all that stuff so i feel like she's the most well-rounded the most interesting of the the team but then the last one you guys mentioned was nobody why is he nobody he turns invisible but how does he do it did you notice where, where his invisibility comes from no no it's not like a visible woman style he actually goes into another dimension and he mentions it's a scary dimension. He doesn't like being in there. So it's like this dark realm that he passes through to go from place to place. And why would he go there? (laughs) Well, that's how his powers work. I guess. I mean, is it kind of like magic in the sense that she is connected to like the demon realm, you know? Yeah, that, that's kind of what it sounds like. I don't know how much teleporting she does. Yeah. I don't know a lot of new mutants, but she does a fair amount. Okay. But you know, <laughs> it's and that's the thing that bothered me was like, truth be told, there's not an original idea in this entire story. Everything no. is just recycled from other characters and other it's almost like bad archetypes of other characters, you know? And there's too many characters to start with. When you once you start with seven characters who yeah. have powers, it's really yeah. hard to keep yeah. track of. You're like Laura is the strong girl. I remember her. That's the the only one that popped in my head was the was her and, and the kid that dropped the box and you mm-hmm. know, yeah. that's it. Box dropper, as yes. we call him. <laughs> Box dropper. <laughs> that was his real first code name. Yeah. Box dropper. So Adam, I got a question. How many issues did this story run for? Now I don't know for sure. Like I said, I have issues one and two. Okay. Mm-hmm. And two is a little bit more action oriented. There's a little bit more development and everything going on there. Uh, but I, I, to my understanding, from what I recall reading, I think it only ran like four issues. It was not super successful, even though part of the contest. Really? Also... Really? Yeah. It wasn't that successful? This? <laughs> I could have never guessed. Won, the kids who won got a percentage of the comic book sales. That was part of their deal. Five sure. bucks. Five bucks, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the last thing I wanted to mention real quick, though, is their villain. Because the villain in this first issue does not appear in the second issue. The villain here is an evil kid who was also at the comic book store who got you know, blasted by the wish bomb. Did you guys have any recollection of what made him evil or what he could do and why all the adults were listening to this little kid ordering them around? His dad was wealthy. He owned a 
factory of some sort and the kid can make explosions a factory yeah yeah Yeah. so he had the factory and he i I don't know if the wish bomb made him a super genius but he said his dad was a super genius so it sounded like he was as well but the wish bomb seemed to have given him some like telekinetic powers because all these he's ordering around all these adults but they're like why are we listening this kid and he's like he like blows up this machine they're like okay okay yeah Yeah. plus his dad pays their salaries the one thing i didn't understand was like after they got their powers why didn't they go back to the old lady and be like yo what up like (laughs) they did they did but she wasn't there oh i missed it then yeah yeah (laughs) totally glazed over and there's this dude there he's like there's nobody who's lived here by that name for 100 years or something you know whatever (laughs) like some random explanation but yeah so that's the mystery right is she Mm. disappeared it's like how are we supposed to get answers now and they can't by the end of issue four they don't find out and nobody cared anymore I know somebody who's really into the good guys tell us the two revelations I'll tell you from issue two that were kind of interesting though is that so this character I don't know if she's from Plasm or Dark Dominion or if they just created her for this but there's this old lady who shows up and she's helping them fight these like monsters that are attacking the city and so she's kind of explaining to them like I'll give you all the details soon but we got to stop this it's revealed that Laura's dad actually was also super powered because at the end of the issue he makes a phone call to some mysterious person and then he flies away to go find oh right so so i mean they they don't establish the range of how that how far that box expanded you know to give people powers you know like is it only contained inside those walls like nobody in the street could have gotten powers either it's well it seemed generational and the other thing about the box is that at the end they show it gets thrown away and it says made in taiwan which i think was meant to say it wasn't the box the power was inside you all the time oh (laughs) jeez Oh boy. Yeah, boy. <laughs> like if they would have done it more like like Shazam, where like seven people got powers because of the seven wizards or whatever, like that would have been cooler, a stolen idea, but it would it would make more sense to just like anybody could get random powers, whatever. Overall, this is not the worst thing you had us read. It might have been the worst art we've seen. Yeah, it's like <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, story-wise, it's fine. It's literally a copycat of a bunch of different things and whatever. It is what it is. It's a, it's a clever idea. I like how they try to intermingle it with reality and, like, you know, try to have them somehow connect, even whether it was successful or not. I, I would beg to say no. But overall, it's I had to give this a grade. This probably got a C for me. I mean, for me, it's, it's definitely in the C range because I love the concept. Execution is poor. But it, it does feel like the precursor to who wants to be a superhero. Right? right it's just the comic book version of that submit it show us your costume show us what you do and now you're featured and you're a star of this particular program or this particular comic book yeah um, but, I, but i guess like i'm very curious to know like, the reaction to the kids that participated like were they mm-hmm. proud to be a part of it <laughs> what's your final assessment steven i would say uh, i agree with you guys it's in the c somewhere range i i like that they tried to incorporate the comic book scene of the 1990s into a comic book it's a cool idea that a kid who reads comics would become a superhero it's almost like how the movie fright night is about a horror fan who lives a horror movie Mm-hmm. It's it's a cool concept. It just was not executed very well. Yeah. Last thing I'll mention here, just as a bit of trivia, is so Mile High Comics in Anaheim, California, like you said, they name drop Rob Liefeld a lot, a lot, a lot, because mm-hmm. he's all showed up to get his signature. I actually went to Mile High Comics in Anaheim. That was my secondary comic book store because it was gigantic. As it's pictured in the comic, 
it looks nothing like that. It looks like a tiny little little shop. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was gigantic. Like it had huge ceilings. It was a warehouse. They had murals out front of Spider-Man, of the Hulk, of Batman, of Superman that were like giant murals painted on the front. And yeah, you just went in, and Mile High Comics is famous for having the largest inventory, right? Yeah. And their expansion store in California. So and I, I bought like you know they had auctions there. I got my copy of Spectacular Spider-Man number one mm-hmm. at Mile High Comics in an auction so that kind of thing like so it was it's extra special to me for that reason it's got the sentimental value to it sure Very there's cool. no long island connection for me so no, I was no, out. No, no. <laughs> sorry no long island there's bound to be some long island somewhere in these comics people find it but yeah so last, last thing i'll just say here i want to throw this out to anybody that's watching if you found this because you were one of the good guys right you've wanted to know does anybody remember that thing that happened to me when i was a kid reach out to us either comment below or you can email us at wizardscomicspod at gmail.com find us on social media at wizardscomics on twitter at wizards underscore comics on instagram we want to hear your story we would love to actually interview you we'd love to i'd love to do that that'd be so fun yeah that'd be awesome yeah despite how we're talking about the end product your journey matters your journey is probably more entertaining than what defiant put out Mm -hmm. i would agree totally please contact us Well, it is time to get into Jim and Todd's Hype Machine. Now, uh, from bedrock to badrock is a wizard news headline that explains the truth, supposedly, about why Rob Liefeld changed the name of his large gray Youngblood character. So it's reported that in Spawn number 13, the character's name was written as Bad Rock, both in the dialogue and in the copyright section, but this is after a year or so of being known as Bedrock in Youngblood comics. Yes, Bedrock, as in the name of the town where the Flintstones lived. And the character also had dialogue that included the battle cry of Yabba Doom! So, despite rumors that Hanna-Barbera asked Liefeld to change the name, Matt Hawkins, the spokesperson for Extreme Studios, claims Rob was never contacted by the legendary animation studio, but then no reason is actually given as to why Liefeld decided to change the name out of the blue. So, we're calling shenanigans on that. This is another one of those characters that when it pops up in the Amazing Arts section, I never remember what it is, and I just make fun of it as like the, you know, knockoff Grey Hulk guy that I don't know who it is. (laughs) And I promise you, the next time it pops up in in Amazing Art, I will forget again. I promise. Now, here's the thing I want to mention, too, for those of you who remember our Comic Fest 93 for Comic-Con Month on the Retro Network. Dean, who was our special guest on that, talked about being at Comic Fest and a guy in a giant Bad Rock costume being harassed by kids who were saying, Why'd you change your name to Bad Rock? How come you're not Bad Rock anymore? <laughs> That's the only thing I think people remember about that character. And his many, many guest appearances. They teamed him up with all sorts of people. But either way, uh, Todd McFarlane's spawn, getting back to Todd and Jim here, was announced to have a crossover with Valeria the She-Bat in issues three and four. We were tracking it. We covered it. We found out it was never released. Uh, in, you know, Neil Adams' continuity comics, we're going to put it out. But they have canceled it. And really, it looks like Todd put the kibosh on it 
according to the report, because of the impending Batman Spawn crossover, he doesn't want any other crossovers happening during the Batman Spawn period, and because he was already late, I guess, delivering the art for Valeria the She-Bat, that he just said, let's just stop it, we're not doing it. Interestingly enough, continuity said they're going to deal with it by just skipping those issues, and in their numbering, they're going to jump to issue number five. <laughs> so, Valeria the She-Bat's one, two, and five, and you have the full series, I guess. Also, Jim Lee reports that Wills Portacio's wet works is almost two-thirds complete, and that in order to complete the book for release, Portacio will not go on tour with the rest of the Image founders. Once again, I mean, Wills Portacio is the guy, he's always somewhere else. You know, he's this, like, lauded artist, but he is never anywhere. Like, the Image guys are doing stuff, and Wills, where's Wills? I don't know, he's working on his book, I guess. Yeah. It's almost done. It'll be done the same time as James Cameron's Avatar 6. <laughs> uh, but I'm curious, so uh, when we talk about image, obviously, you know, you're telling us, uh, Eric, that you weren't reading comics necessarily during this era where image was white hot. But what does image mean to you then in retrospect as you've gone back and either looked at stuff or read current output? I do remember I had several image titles that were bagged up in bulk like oh wow six image comics for a dollar what a bargain these <laughs> great yeah i feel like it got off to a shaky start with a lot of ambitious ideas that eh, didn't have a whole lot of weight to support it i think that image has gotten off on the right foot recently by diversifying their genres especially lately where you still have superhero titles like Invincible, but you also have weird things like Horror with the Walking Dead or a bizarre mishmash sci-fi romance political satire like Saga. So I feel like it's an important company and it's just took a little while to get there. <laughs> they started out as Marvel Jr. And uh, now, <laughs> now there's something that, yeah, definitely has relevance to the industry as a whole. So that's great. Now, uh, in this issue, your boy, Jim Lee there, Eric, he had nine mentions and Todd was coming in at six. So that brings our total to Jim Lee, 174 mentions and Todd, 152. Now, Michael and Steven, I hope you guys are prepared to read the entire issue and tally mark every time Jim and Todd are mentioned when I go on sabbatical. Oh, right. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you guys can split it up. One can take Jim, one can take Todd. Yeah. Oh, this is going to be fun. No, pro <laughs> no promises. If any of our listeners want to assist them with this, please let us know. If you want to do that, if you want to get an issue and go through every single page like our fearless leader does and count these names, by all means, have at it. I don't have enough time in the day to do that. Oh boy, that's gonna be rough. You're, we might be at, at one seventy four and 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 one fifty two for a little while there, Adam. I'm just. I'm going to grab a black magic marker and just cross out Rob Liefeld's name every time I see it. And redacted, all my redacted, yeah. redacted, redacted, redacted. <laughs> Very nice. Rob-dacted. 
It's worth mentioning as we close out this segment also that Todd McFarlane does continue his ego column. This one is titled Peer Pressure. And uh, essentially, he is kind of, I I mean, he's rambling. Let, let's not uh, <laughs> let's not put it in, in any other words. He's just kind of going off on, on what he's dealing with these days. But he says one thing here, though, regarding image. He says, the distributors and retailers have valid reasons to complain to us for our business decisions because we affect their livelihood but i don't affect john burns livelihood one iota he doesn't collect spawn yet seems to want to educate the public about our quote bad deeds i'm not picking on john because he's one of many but what difference does it make to him as a creative person if you're not doing business with us if you've never worked with us if you will probably never work with us what difference does it make to you personally how we conduct our business the only thing i can see right now is that it boils down to jealousy See. Oh boy. Yeah, he he actually uh, also mentions that Peter David and John Byrne, they didn't really respect each other. Now they have a common bond. They both tolerate one another and debate about image. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> There's a lot of shots fired in this issue between John Byrne and uh, the Image guys. Yeah, it was white hot at this time, for sure. But, you know, we don't want to leave on a negative vibe. No, man. Yeah, you know, so Wizard uh, wants to leave you with a laugh each issue, and we're no different. So in the aftermath of the, of the death and return of a certain big blue Boy Scout, here's Wizard's top ten excuses Superman could have used to explain the disappearance of Clark Kent. This is a big deal at the time. Top 10 excuses Superman could have used to explain the disappearance of Clark Kent. Number 10. He went on a bender with Tony Stark and ended up butt naked in a hotel in Tijuana with a new tattoo. (laughs) That's quite a story. That's quite a story, all right. Number 9. He had fallen and he couldn't get back up. Could leave that line alone in jokes. Yeah. Because <laughs> that commercial was on everywhere at this time, so it makes sense. We're sending help immediately, Miss Fletcher. <laughs> Number eight. The line to go see Last Action Hero was really, really big, but nobody would have believed this. <laughs> oh, shots Aww. fired at Last Action Hero. I love that. I movie. was there. I was in line. <laughs> I was uh, not. It's a classic. Number seven, he was out selling off all of his Marvel stock. Ooh. Man, so many burns this issue. Yeah, really. (laughs) Wish I owned Marvel stock now. (laughs) Number six, he had just washed his hair and he couldn't do a thing with it. How often do you use that excuse, Michael? Every time my family members want to get together, I usually say, I'm sorry. I'm washing my hair. I can't do this Zoom call. So <laughs> <laughs> I use it very much in the last 10 months all the time. Eric, what do you got for number five? All right. He was buried beneath a pile of image books that were being returned to his local retailer. Ooh. Ooh. Number four. Visited Euro Disneyland, was beaten by rowdy Frenchmen, and hospitalized. <laughs> oh, man. The poor French. <laughs> so number three, he was out hawking copies of the bag Superman number 75 before word got out that Soups was only sort of dead. <laughs> That's a very good point, because as soon as that happened, value of that book, woo. Oh, yeah. Dropped like a rock. Oh, no, number two. Uh, we, oh. Damage control. Damage control. Damage control. This 
actually works really well. So perfect. Oh, my God. I am from Long Island, and this one tracks number two. He was recovering from his Amy Fisher-inflicted gunshot wound. Wow. I mean, do you guys have a Buttafuoco story? All your Long Island stories, you run into Buttafuoco? I do, but I don't feel comfortable talking about it. I do have a Buttafuoco story as well, and I don't feel comfortable talking about it either. That's for Patreon. You want the story? Become a patron. I may have to grab that uh, patron story because uh, (laughs) my memory doesn't stretch far enough back to remember Amy Fisher. Who was that? Okay, I'll I'll give you a quick little synopsis of it. So there was a story on Long Island about a a girl who was like high school age named Amy Fisher. 16 years old. Yeah, and she went over to her boyfriend's house who was married to uh another a, a woman another you know somebody else and with a gun and shot the wife in the face the front door because she wanted to be with her boyfriend Joey Botafuco so he tried she tried to kill his wife in broad daylight on her front porch and she was known as the Long Island Lolita, Lolita. yes and and <laughs> You know, Alyssa Milano played her in a made-for-TV movie. Andrew Barrymore. Andrew Barrymore. Yeah, they, they were dueling Amy Fisher story movies. <laughs> no, there were three there Amy Fisher There was three movies. Amy Fisher oh. stories. Oh. Yeah. It, it was hot times for Long Island back then. <laughs> yes, uh, I'm sure this would have been a very topical uh, story at the time. Oh, yeah. Unlike Absolutely. today, where, where nothing happened. 2021 looks amazing. Nothing happened here. <laughs> oh. All right, well, Eric, take us out on number one. All right, number one. He was helping out Superboy get his fake ID. That's what you wanted to go out on, huh, Wizard? That's the high note. The Amy Fisher was the high note. <laughs> what is wrong with them? Oh, well, guys, I mean, this was a blast. Eric, again, thank you so much for joining us. And, you know, why don't you tell the folks where they can get in touch with you online and find more of your work? Certainly. You can check out my website, ericjohnsonillustrator.com, for a gallery of my work. Check uh, up to date with all of my social media, where I post my latest projects, particularly on Instagram, where I'm also at Eric Johnson Illustrator. That's Eric, spelled E-R-I-K, just F-Y-I. In addition to art, I also do movie reviews. You can hear me monthly on the Mystery Movie Night podcast. We're the movie podcast that's also a game. I love that tagline. (laughs) Yes, I co-host with Nerd Lunch 4th Chair Army General Michael May and a company of other podcast alum as we discover the secret connection between films. We've covered a handful of comic book movies in the past, including the Damon Wayans classic, Blank Man. (gasps) Oh my gosh. It's everywhere. Tell it, you people. It's everywhere. Yes, if you're interested in that, I recommend going back to episode 10, where we learn that that film has an unlikely association with Sam Raimi's other cult classic film, The Evil Dead. Today, on Facebook, (laughs) on one of my, like, one-six scale action figure groups that I follow, they're, like, championing for Sideshow to make a blank man and other guy one-six scale figure. I'm like... (laughs) 
the time is ripe for this to happen here. I'm telling you. Steven is, like, completely disgusted right now. <laughs> if, if the audience votes for Blank Man, I'll review Blank Man. Damn I'm right in. you will. Steven is championing Dark Man 2 in the background. <laughs> I just want to make Michael's life as uncomfortable as possible. I, I gotta watch, you know, Army of Darkness at some point. I'm not looking forward to doing that either. What? That was oh. the first rated R movie I saw in theaters. Really? Yes. <laughs> oh, was that rated R? It just feels so light by comparison to the others. It was rated R. It was a big deal. <laughs> and, uh, of course, if you want more of Wizards, more of these types of conversations, well, you'll also find Eric commenting quite regularly on our social media. On Twitter, at Wizards Comics. On Instagram, at Wizards underscore comics. On our YouTube channel, of course, we got Action Figure Fury. We got Logbox Roulette. We got the gimmicks grab bag we got all sorts of features over there but if you just can't get enough wizards the patreon guide to comics is there for you it is in full effect now we're so grateful to our patrons out there we'll shout them out right now thank you mark mcdonald thank you nerd jam room thank you so much to jason over at the retro network for becoming a patron as well you guys are awesome and by the time this episode's released i'm sure we'll have many more we may have convinced eric so he could get that long <laughs> island story uh the butafuco <laughs> diaries from steven and michael <laughs> but there's so much more uh to be had there again we have exclusive videos we have exclusive comic book movie reviews from steven and michael that i will be popping in on especially blank man when that comes around <laughs> i want to be there for that i got it on vhs ready to go but also get interaction with the members of the crew depending on which level you decide to be a part of you could comment to us back and forth but if you want an actual zoom call you could become a big cheese and monthly we'll have our own little private podcast together i'm gonna throw in a special offer too <laughs> if, if somebody becomes a big cheese and wants to have a zoom call with me to poke fun or make jokes about my knowledge when it comes to this time period of comics i would love to have a conversation because i just always feel so inept sometimes when we're talking about this stuff to, to hear the abuse in person as opposed to <laughs> read it on social media i'm all for it <laughs> We'll see if we can get that arranged. I would love it. So go on over to patreon.com slash wizardscomics, and you could choose from one of three tiers, $3 a month, $5 a month, $7 a month. What do you want to get out of your wizards? The Patreon guide to comics experience, it's all in your hands. And I will say, the majority of our patrons right now have chosen the big cheese level, so it's affordable, it's a great deal. But until next time... Keep your books bagged and boarded. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.